This is The Guardian. Before we start, this week's episode contains some very, very strong language, so you might not want to listen with children around. Just when you thought you'd seen the back of Dominic Cummings, he's returned and so have the contents of his WhatsApps as read out to the COVID inquiry. You called ministers useless fuckpigs, morons, cunts. One of the most senior women in Whitehall, Helen McNamara, then described how it felt to be shown messages in which Cummings called her the C-word. It's horrible to read, but it is both surprising and not surprising to me, and I don't know which is worse. This week's hearings exposed an allegedly toxic working culture inside Downing Street, with potentially profound consequences for decisions that affected all of us during the pandemic. Just how deep did the damage go? I'm Gabby Hinslip, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for the Garden. Before we get into the COVID inquiry, government leaders and tech companies have been meeting this week to discuss the future of artificial intelligence in a landmark summit at Bletchley Park, home of wartime codebreaking. The long-awaited AI safety summit is essentially Rishi Sunak's big moment to show the world that the UK has a role to play in AI. Kieran Stacey is our political correspondent at the summit, and I should say we're making this episode on Wednesday lunchtime, so halfway through it. Hello, Kieran. Hi, Gabby. How are you doing? I'm all right. I hope you're enjoying Milton Keynes. Um, (laughs) The UK government wants us to think um, this is very significant. Uh, You've been there all morning. Is it? What what can we expect to emerge in concrete terms? Well, there's two days of summitry here at Bletchley Park, um, which are going to be quite different in nature, I think. I'm speaking to you on Wednesday, and today has been all about uh, technology ministers and industry people getting into some of the nitty-gritty over exactly how to regulate the AI industry, especially as it develops models that might even become more intelligent than human beings. So it's it's quite it's quite techie, it's quite nerdy, for want of a better word, but it is quite significant as well. So this morning, I thought the most striking thing was to watch Michelle Donnellan, the UK Science and Technology Secretary, sitting on a stage next to Gina Raimondo, the US Commerce Secretary, uh, who was in turn sitting next to the Chinese Vice Minister for uh, Science and Technology, Wu Jiahui. And just to see those three people all sharing a stage together, all giving speeches that sounded pretty similar in tone was quite a remarkable thing. So to an extent already, the UK's pulled off a bit of a diplomatic coup. We'll see what happens with the rest of the summit. Um, Elon Musk is around, so there's always uh, the risk of chaos at any point. Rishi Sunak will turn up on Thursday and, of course, will host a what used to be called a Twitter space, but I guess it's now called an X space with Elon Musk on Thursday afternoon. So we could get some fireworks from that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to ask about that because it's not without risk, I wouldn't say, doing a, a live chat with Elon Musk, uh, Mr. Free Speech himself. And it's not also to an extent it's lending, it feels as if it's lending the British government's endorsement to to Musk to share, for the prime minister to share a platform with him. And he's not an uncontroversial figure, is he? No, it seems quite extraordinary to me. Obviously, Elon Musk is in charge of X. He's also developing his own AI tools, still has Tesla, still has a lot of different businesses that interact with the government in, in lots of different ways. So 
it does almost seem like a bit of an endorsement from the UK government. My guess, I haven't been told this, but my guess is that this must have been something of a quid pro quo for Elon Musk turning up at all. And for the last few weeks, it's looked like the summit might end up being a bit of a damp squib because a lot of heads of state have decided not to come, most notably Joe Biden, but also Emmanuel Macron is not here. Uh, Schultz is not here, the German chancellor. So really, Elon Musk, in a way, is the star attraction. And maybe to get him to turn up, the UK government had to agree to do something on his platform. That wouldn't surprise me at all. There's a metaphor, very tempting to see a metaphor here for the relationship between governments and the tech industry, whereby who exactly is going all out to um, to please who and to secure whose consent. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, one of the things that I think we're picking up from all of the senior people in the AI industry being in one place at one time, is that there are quite different opinions within the industry about how to regulate it and what actually needs regulating. So some people are saying, look, these more advanced frontier models could end up wiping out humanity. Others, um, Nick Clegg has been around for the last couple of days, and he's been saying, come on, that's a bit far-fetched. That's a long way in the future. We really should be focusing on more immediate problems such as bias, discrimination, the, the chance that AI could be used for disinformation. So it's kind of interesting to hear all of those arguments being presented at once. Um, but and I think one of the reasons that uh, Rishi Sunak was happy to, to do this with Elon Musk is Elon Musk has been saying things that are quite similar to the UK government line, which is that frontier AIs, it's known, these very advanced models that might overtake humanity at some point, are a real threat to existence. And, and that is the line that the, the British government's been pushing quite heavily for the last few weeks. But it's not the line it's always been pushing, isn't it? I mean, looking back to, Sunak talks a lot now about the UK being a world leader in AI, which has been the consistent line since the start. I mean, everyone wants to be a, a world leader in AI. But the white paper back in March did seem to suggest we were we were sort of supposed to achieve that by having very light touch regulation, essentially kind of getting a commercial advantage over perhaps more cautious EU countries that might uh, want to regulate it more heavily. But of late, Sunak seems to have rode back on that, met some public resistance to it. And he now talks a lot more about putting guardrails in place and about safety and about regulatory caution. Do you think it's just the language that's changed or do you think anything has changed in practice? No, no, I think he's changed his mind. It's really noticeable. And it started kind of early summer uh, around the time that he went to Japan. He came back from that summit suddenly starting to talk about guardrails in a way that he hadn't before. And it wasn't entirely clear whether he'd had a conversation while there with either an executive or an, a, you know, a fellow world leader that had rung the alarm bells. I suspect what happened for Rishi Sunak over the summer was what happened for a lot of the rest of us, which is we saw ChatGPT4 being released and we suddenly realized, oh my goodness, this thing is really, really powerful. And I think that's focused a lot of minds in government and outside of government. To, to think of, well, if this is what it can do now, what on earth is the next generation of large language models going to be able to achieve? So Joe Biden isn't in the UK for this summit, but Kamala Harris, his vice president, is here, isn't she? What's her role in all this? Yeah, well, Kamala Harris has got quite an interesting role over the next few days. While I'm here at Bletchley Park alongside uh, technology ministers from around the world, Kamala Harris is giving a speech back in London, which could overshadow a lot of the events here today, which is all going to be about the near-term risks, you know, the, the chance for election disinformation, the risk that 
AI models could be biased and lead to discriminatory decision making. And I think the US government, the Biden administration is much more focused on that question. Uh, she's then hosting a drinks reception and she'll have dinner with Rishi Sunak on Wednesday night before then attending the summit on the Thursday. Uh, but it is noticeable that probably the highest profile international politician who's turned up has managed to suck some of the energy away from the actual official summit, at least on the first day. Thanks very much, Kieran. Enjoy the rest of the summit. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Now, while the government would like us to be talking about AI this week, it's the COVID inquiry that has dominated the headlines, with witnesses talking about a culture of chaos and dysfunction, a prime minister out of his depth, and a macho culture that stopped senior women doing their jobs properly. You called ministers useless fuckpigs, morons, cunts, in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who are dealing with this crisis extremely badly. I'm joined now by The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Krirar, from a very busy Westminster office. Hello, Pippa. Hello. Hi, Gabby. Now, there'll be a lot of people watching the inquiry or listening to this podcast who have lost loved ones during COVID. A friend of mine who lost her mum during the pandemic said she was crying watching the live stream at home because it brought a lot of tough feelings back. And the same will be true for people who suffered badly in lockdown, lots of anger and, and grief being stirred up all over again. But you've been close to this story, I guess, in, a, in a, as a different way as a reporter, Pippa. Given what you, you knew at the time about what was happening in Number 10, what we've heard since, was there anything coming out of this week's hearings that's been new or shocking to you? So there are new facts which have emerged over the past few days in the COVID inquiry. But what struck me most was how much actually the, the evidence that we've seen and the individuals that have appeared um, before the inquiry have confirmed what we already knew and confirmed really the worst of what we already knew. Yes, sort of salacious details, particular stories, but but more widely about, more broadly about the sort of the culture that existed at number 10 at the time, the way that decisions were made, which were so shocking when they were first claimed that nobody quite believed them. And now we've had a series of advisors and civil servants, former civil servants appearing and confirming that they were true. And so it's really been that more than anything that the worst of what we expected was actually what was going on inside government at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was a shock to hear, for example, you know, WhatsApps from Boris Johnson saying that Tory MPs thought COVID was nature's way of, of dealing with the elderly and so on. But for, for me, it was, it was particularly what we've heard about misogyny within government, a culture that actively prevented people doing their, their jobs properly, especially women. And just want to play something. When counsel to the inquiry, Hugo Keith, um, read out some of Cummings's WhatsApps to the inquiry on Tuesday, including this one sent to colleagues about Helen McNamara, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary, one of the most senior women in the civil service. I don't care how it's done, but that woman must be out of our hair. We cannot keep dealing with this horrific meltdown of the British state while dodging stilettos from that cunt. There were audible gasps in the in the room after that. The next witness on Wednesday morning was none other than Helen McNamara, who had this to say about the broader culture inside Whitehall at the time. Women whose job it was to do something were not able to do their jobs properly because 
they weren't having the space or being asked the right questions or being treated with the respect that they would do. And it was genuinely, um, it was it was both striking and awful. And then the fact that there were no women contributing to the policy discussions, problem in itself because there were some expert women who weren't being listened to, and also women were being looked over. Pippa, what did you make of all that? Well, I think we'd heard a bit previously about the sort of the blokey macho culture that existed inside Number 10 at the time. And certainly knowing some of the individuals involved, that didn't necessarily come as a surprise. But I don't think that we expected it to be quite as extreme as some of the language, some of the WhatsApp messages, some of the diary entries suggested. And it wasn't just Helen McNamara that was on the receiving end of it, although she obviously was a high profile example that came up in Dominic Cummings' evidence and of course appeared in front of the inquiry on Wednesday herself. But it was more it was more broad ranging. And you know, Cummings' defense that he he can't have been misogynistic because he spoke in the same way to men or was worse towards men, I don't really think is much is much of a defense. And certainly the way that that um, Helen McNamara felt about some of the language that was used about her, which of course came from Cummings and others, but wasn't called out by the Prime Minister. But it wasn't just the language that was used as well. It was also sort of the way that women were made to feel invisible in meetings. They were kind of, um, there was this super macho culture where everyone was trying to outdo themselves on who could have the solution to this huge problem that was facing the country. And the women who were very experienced and, and senior in the roles were kind of cut out of that and, and not taken seriously. The point that she made in her here, in her evidence as well was that there was a real world impact of that because it meant that there weren't people in the room that necessarily were thinking about things from the perspective of, for example, a domestic abuse victim or a single mum or somebody whose kids were on free school meals. And that meant that the government reaction was not really fit for purpose to support some of the most vulnerable groups in society. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I suspect a lot of women will have had some experience of the kind of working conditions she describes or will have sat in meetings like that where you feel that no one's listening to to what you're saying but this wasn't just about some individual women had a tough time at work it was about how that affected everybody else but there's a, there's a broader context of course to all of this um which is you know you you saw in some ways two individuals facing each other at the inquiry this week but they both were speaking to broader tensions between the cabinet office and number 10 during COVID. And this week, we've heard both essentially blaming each other for not getting a grip. This is what Dominic Cummings had to say about the state of the Cabinet Office. The Cabinet Office was a bombsite. And we had a huge problem of, um, of quality control of documents going into meetings. And inconsistent data, inconsistent facts being read out. And many officials have come to me and said, this is causing chaos. There has to be some uh, a formalised system to actually grip this because the Cabinet Office was a dumpster fire. McNamara, in turn, pointed at number 10, saying that particularly in January, February, when the virus was starting to spread in Europe, Johnson, Boris Johnson was overconfident, telling Cabinet not to overreact to something that wasn't going to be a huge problem. If you are in that sort of meeting with that sort of Prime Minister in that sort of environment, it's quite hard to be the person who injects a note of caution or says, I'm not really sure about this. Or So I can't say that it wasn't, you know, I can't presume that because that's what I heard, that elsewhere there weren't also people saying, hang on a second. I imagine that there were, actually. It's whether they were heard or not that I think is the, is the question. And I would say, undoubtedly, that the sort of unbelievably bullish, we're going to be great at everything approach is not a smart mentality to 
have inside a government meeting. So essentially you have number 10 and cabinet office blaming each other for what went wrong. Why does it matter, Pippa? Why is it important that those departments would normally work closely together in a crisis? Well, the cabinet office is sort of the nerve centre of government. It doesn't have sort of a policy brief, an individual policy brief in the way that other departments do, but it directs other departments and it is kind of like the conduit from which the instructions are issued for number 10 and then and then um, they go through the cabinet office and it is supposed to make sure that government works properly. And that also includes in moments of uh, crisis or emergency, such as they faced during the pandemic. Right from the off, Dominic Cummings, when he came into Downing Street, backed up, presumably, by Boris Johnson, his boss, had a very different attitude to the civil service. He thought it was bloated. He thought it wasn't fit for purpose. He thought that um, civil servants were not uh, working in the way that they should that they were, they were slow and outdated, was very critical of them and had grand plans to kind of rip up the way that the civil service operated and reform the management structures. Now, I'm sure that people in the civil service that think that the management structures could have done with a bit of modernising, could still do with a bit of modernising, but he was coming in really for sort of an ideological purpose, even before the pandemic. So they, they got off to a bad start, if you like, and then at just the moment when you needed them to have a good relationship, when you needed the cabinet office to be able to direct the rest of Whitehall to be able to bring together the different arm's length agencies, the NHS and the public health bodies, to be able to have a strategy and a plan. They weren't getting on. They weren't communicating on a personal level. Um, there was uh, a lot of distrust between the two parts of the organisation. I mean, we heard some of it from from Cummings talking about the cabinet office being terrifyingly shit in a WhatsApp message to Johnson in March 2020, just as the pandemic was ramping up. He suggested that Mark Sedwell, the cabinet secretary at the time, hasn't a scooby what's going on. Helen McNamara was obviously in the cabinet office, um, as was uh, Simon Case, who came in and then was promoted to be said to take over from Sedwell. There was no love lost between a lot of these people. What can you tell us about, about Helen McNamara? Because she certainly came across very differently to Dominic Cummings as a witness. I mean, he was sort of classically quite bombastic, I would guess. You know, she was she came across quite differently. Yeah, well, she's a career civil servant. So it has never been her role to be in the public eye or to uh, push political arguments or indeed to campaign. And of course, all of those things Dominic Cummings was uh, very effective at. She has been in the civil service for about 20 years. She's worked in a variety of departments. She worked with Tessa Jowell, preparing the London uh, Olympics bid, and then progressed pretty quickly through the ranks of the civil service, ended up in the cabinet office from before Brexit. So about 2014, I think she was there, and then worked on a variety of roles in different departments, including at the housing department. And crucially, just before her role during the pandemic, she was she took over from Sue Gray, who you may uh, have heard of, um, as Director General of the Property and Ethics Team in the Cabinet Office. She's an archetypal civil servant in some ways, uh, in that she was balanced and fair-minded. She knew she was answering to the boss, the Prime Minister. Um, and yet she ended up in a situation where she was in this ultimately felt a very political battle with people that had a sort of a disregard from the, for the truth which that came through very strongly that she felt that in her in her evidence that they didn't necessarily operate at the standards that you might expect ministers to operate at or, or special advisors to operate at. And that must have felt like a conflict for her every day. And of course, ultimately, she left the civil service. She kept saying that it didn't feel usual, didn't she? It didn't feel like a, mm. a normal operation. One other thing that, that really struck me from from Dominic Cummings' evidence, which was he was very keen to blame, you know, other people for the machine failing. He was extremely critical, obviously in his WhatsApps at the time, but also in his testimony of other senior officials, other 
senior politicians have a very low opinion of, of cabinet ministers. But I mean, his job as essentially de facto chief of staff to the prime minister was really to make that machine work, wasn't it? And to make his boss deliver. He was, he couldn't just separate himself from the fact that the machine was failing. If they were failing, he was failing. And it, weirdly, the person who seemed to best sum up in some ways was Boris Johnson himself in this WhatsApp uh, sent to Dominic Cummings just as he was leaving, which was uh, read to the inquiry by counsel Hugo Keith. This is a totally disgusting orgy of narcissism by a government that should be solving a national crisis. We must end this. That's why I wanted to talk and see what we could jointly do to sterilise the whole thing. But if you really refuse, then that's up to you. Orgy of narcissism feels like one of those phrases that sticks, doesn't it, Pepper? It does. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of phrases, I think, from the, the hearing over the last few days, which which I think may well stick. Dominic Cummings was never a, a normal senior advisor. He was the most powerful official, most powerful prime ministerial aide we've seen in decades, if not ever, in that when he came into Downing Street, I think he felt that it was a project that was equally his responsibility as it was Boris Johnson's. I mean, even going back pre-COVID, we, we've learned that he and his allies felt that getting or helping Boris Johnson get elected in 2019, first of all, winning the leadership, Tory leadership, and then getting elected was sort of the lesser of two evils, if you like. They thought that when they were on balance looking at delivering Brexit and the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn in prime, as prime minister, that Boris Johnson was the was the sort of the least worst option and that and that there would come a moment where they could get rid of him, which is incredibly arrogant when you think about it, given he's elected politician and they were the ones who were only there by virtue of, of being his advisors. So this is before even what we got to COVID. Cummings obviously had a huge sense of entitlement. And I think that's come across in all the hearings and committee hearings that we've heard him in and felt that he alone knew how things should have worked properly. I guess on the one hand, if he was saying he was inflicting the prime minister on the country, but you know that they get rid of him at some point. I mean, I mean, whose job, who gave him that power to do on all of our behalf? You know, we, the electorate, voted, or some of us, some of us, some of us did, some of us didn't, voted for Boris Johnson. The fact that he thought that he had that right is incredible. And we see that in his response to, to both the cabinet and, and to the cabinet office, and in particular, ministers like uh, Matt Hancock, who clearly he, the, the then health secretary, who clearly he held in absolute disdain. You feel, I mean, as if, at some points, he almost regards Boris Johnson as an encumbrance to the Dominic Cummings project mm. rather than the other way around. Previous public inquiries, we've always seen there's a tendency for an inner circle to remain loyal, you know, to close ranks of it around the boss, try not to say anything that incriminates him. You know, in, in this inquiry, we've almost seen the opposite. The most damaging testimony about Boris Johnson has come from people who were really close to him, from Cummings, from Lee Kane, you know, his direct communications, from his private office, his civil servants who work most closely with him. There's a weird thing about Boris Johnson always that people who are closest to him are often more critical of it. People who see him from only far away tend to absolutely love him. And people who've worked up close with him often less affectionate. It's absolutely true. And we've seen that throughout his career and my goodness, isn't that damning that some of those who've worked closest with him are those that feel um, the most critical and some, sometimes the most betrayed. They feel they've been promised the earth and then let down. And that, that unfortunately has transcended his professional life into his personal life as well. Let's take a minute. And when we come back, we'll talk about what's coming next at the inquiry. Welcome back. 
Now, obviously, the current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was Chancellor during the pandemic. And although we've yet to hear much about his role at the inquiry, Lee Kane did criticise his eat out uh, help out scheme. Pippa, Boris Johnson's career in politics is, I guess, effectively over anyway. But Sunak has more to lose, doesn't he, from this inquiry? What do you think number 10 sees as the most dangerous aspects of it for him? What questions would they be most worried about? There'll be lots of individual questions and items and issues that number 10 will be concerned might cause problems for Rishi Sunak. Um, I think the the fact that he rejected calls to pay the poorest to isolate during the pandemic, I think the eat out to help out staff that will be problematic for him, but he will be, always be able to answer that he was Chancellor at the time, his priority was the economy. I think his response to going into the second lockdown will be in, really interesting because he, we understand, really resisted that. And of course, Johnson dragged his feet and dragged his feet and then the, the effect of that delay then meant that the lockdown had to be more prolonged, that the economy suffered more and, of course, more people died. Um, so I think his role in that is going to be problematic. But I think ultimately what they'll be most concerned about is the fact that this whole inquiry, this whole saga, once again shines a light on an administration of, of which he was part of, which he played a senior role as Chancellor of the Exchequer and how the, sort of the dysfunction of that operation and uh, the way they ran the country at that time, it just links it all back to the Conservative brand again. And he had pitched himself as a clean break from the chaotic leadership from his two immediate predecessors, not least Johnson during the COVID era. And once again, he's right slap bang in the middle of it all again. Yeah, none of that, that helps dredging up those memories going into a general election year. I just, I mean, it's still relatively early in the inquiry. You know, we're we're only really into the the foothills of the evidence. But listening this week, I've been wondering how far the families will feel, either that politicians are being held accountable for any of the things we're hearing, given that most of the people giving evidence have already, you know, long ago resigned and and left politics, and whether we're going to get the kind of lessons out of this that are actually going to to help in a future crisis. Do you? feel, Pippa, as if it's going to deliver the kind of, I don't know, satisfaction, closure, whatever it is that that people want out of this? I think there's a couple of things. I think that there's work which is already ongoing in government about the processes and the systems to deal with something like this, if should it ever happen again. And that work, I think, is happening. And, you know, you've got to hope that that the civil service, that Whitehall, that the government has learnt the lessons and would be better equipped should something like this happen again. And I think we've heard from various officials and senior scientists that have appeared in front of the inquiry so far that we would be much more equipped should another pandemic appear and, um, and that that is something that has improved and we have learned. I think the process of the inquiry itself, and I speak quite a lot to um, various bereaved families, um, and people that have got a very sort of direct stake in, in all of this, uh, whose lives were really severely impacted by the pandemic for one reason or another. And they, for the most part, feel that the process of the inquiry is quite cathartic, that it gives an opportunity to ask those questions. It's not just the inquiry's own lawyers, of course, that ask the questions, the different interested parties, so the long COVID group and the bereaved families group, and there are others, are able also to have their lawyers ask questions of people like Dominic Cummings and presumably the, the politicians when they appear um, before Christmas as well. Whatever the ultimate outcome of Baroness Hallett's report at the end of the inquiry is, I think people feel that those individuals that ran the country during that time are at least being held to account. And I think that's really important when it comes to processing and being able to accept and even move on from what for many people has been 
such an incredibly difficult period of their lives. Just having to answer publicly, I guess, is I guess is important, or to, to have your day in court, except it's not a court, but you know what I mean. One of the things really struck me from this week is that the culture that we've been talking about, the sort of the chaos, the dysfunction, the petty personal squabbles, the the egos, that nobody quite knowing what they're doing or what the Prime Minister wants. That was the culture, of course, in which COVID decisions were taken, but it it was the culture in which an awful lot of other decisions must have been taken over that period. You know, every big call that we can think of that government made was made by this system, you know, which we've now seen in all its whatever the opposite is of glory. Does that explain potentially quite a lot about where we are now? Well, I think COVID sucked the oxygen out of Whitehall in a way that um, very few things could. So I think there was limited bandwidth to what else they could deliver. I think it kind of overtook everything for a long period of time. But it does, I think, probably give us an indication of why, take, for example, the levelling up programme that was promised by Boris Johnson in 2019. And look where we are now. I mean, part of the problem with that initially was that it was all things to all people because it was so ill-defined. And that means that because it was all things to all people, lots of people have been ended, ended up disappointed because it hasn't delivered what they expected it to be delivered to deliver. But I think knowing now what we know about what was going on behind the scenes and how decisions were made and how these battles were being fought, it also suggests that it wasn't just about the fact it was a fairly amorphous concept. It was also about the the ability to deliver and to drive through any big policy development just wasn't there. It was just so conflicted at so many points because of the way that that Downing Street operation ran. Um, it says an awful lot about sort of the failure to deliver on what for many people was a great promise at the 2019 election. And the fact that Rishi Sunak, when he then came in to power, one of his kind of selling points, if you like, was that he was mopping up the, the, the problems that Boris Johnson had created. You know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, was one of the first things he did. He sort of got that sorted because it hadn't been a priority or hadn't been able to get through that particular number 10. And now I think we have a possibly a better idea of why. Thank you very much, Pippa. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 